welcome back rich girls new and old to the money with katie podcast this week we are diving into the most romantic valentine's day appropriate topic imaginable how to deal with a financially irresponsible partner And hey, maybe that's you. Every once in a while, I will receive a DM that sounds like this with varying levels of extremeness and urgency. Hey, I love your stuff. I'm really excited about making some big financial changes, but my boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, cat isn't really on board. What should I do? I should disclaim up front that I asked my husband what he would tell people if they asked him this, and he responded hilariously, oh, I'll just show them the math. No, I said the math isn't gonna help anybody, but then I reconsidered. Isn't the math what convinced me after all? So let's dive in. Before we jump into how to handle the situation though, let's talk about signs of financial irresponsibility to confirm that you've got an issue in the first place. After all, not being thrilled about retiring at 35 by working 80 hours a week and subsisting on top ramen isn't exactly a financial crime, even if you are excited about it. As much as I wish we could, we can't always mold our significant others into baby Dave Ramsey's, and honestly, why would we want to? These might sound kind of judgmental, but I would ask that you suspend your inclination to be overly accepting and empathetic, good tendencies, just not right now, and look at these traits independently and objectively. Even though dating someone with dicey financial habits might not directly impact your own finances right now, marrying someone with sketchy financial practices almost certainly will. Not only that, but 41% of Gen X divorces were the result of disagreements around money. That's not to say you shouldn't marry or stay married to a financially irresponsible partner, but it means ignoring the issue or being overly blasé about determining a solution together could spell major expensive trouble later. And sometimes that can stem from just not being on the same page about how one another is going to contribute to the household. One rich girl told me this. Money has always been a constraint, and I feel like that's probably pretty consistent with a lot of people. When we first met, we were 20. I was still in college. He was working at a local roofing company. So I had no income. I didn't have a job. Um, he was making not very much at all. After a year of dating, we moved in together. So I was then in grad school and still making no money. So it was kind of this weird thing of, He's making the money. He's paying the bills. I'm really not contributing anything. I did a lot of, like, housework, and, like, that's how I kind of made up for my, you know, downfalls. And then after I graduated, started working big four accounting, I was all of a sudden making a lot more money than him at the time. So then things switched. And it was like, okay, now I'm paying almost all of the bills. And then it was this kind of power dynamic change with us. And that's almost been our entire relationship. 
As an aside, the funny thing about pretty much all of the women I talk to is that regardless of whether or not they're the breadwinner, the household labor seems to fall on them, but that's an issue for another episode. Another rich girl, Meredith, told me that she and her partner have very different approaches to finances, like vastly. We're really polar opposites. My husband literally every single day has the joint budget open and he has three screens and the joint budget lives on the third screen at all times. <laughs> like 6 a.m. or 7 a.m. I'm drinking coffee and like, you know, having my quiet time in the morning. And he'll be like, so what do you think about us contributing to this fund instead? <laughs> it's like, I physically am incapable of having this conversation right now. So let's talk about two of the biggest issues that I see. Number one, you or your partner care more about appearances than reality. Maybe they're still on the hedonic treadmill of new cars and Gucci belts, and that's all well and good if they've got the income to support it comfortably, but if they're financing a lifestyle they've got no business living, there's probably room for improvement. Number two, you or your partner have no desire to learn and practice willful, destructive ignorance. It's not a crime to not know how to manage money. Nobody comes out of the womb good with their finances. It is a skill that you have to learn just like anything else in life, and you can't hold someone's ignorance against them until it becomes intentional. If your partner regularly puts themselves in bad financial situations but refuses to learn from the mistakes or acknowledge that they've got growing to do, I would consider that a sign of just general irresponsibility, not just financial especially if those decisions frequently blow back on you. In other words, you're either financially bailing them out on a regular basis or the stress of their decisions is impacting your life or vice versa. I think most other money issues can be bucketed into one of those two categories. The first is questionable prioritization, while the second is the utter lack of prioritization. I repeat, this may sound harsh, but if you're tempted to defend either of those behaviors in yourself or your partner, I would ask that you resist the urge to be the enabler. Most people who have issues with money behave that way for a reason that can be traced back to how they grew up. At the risk of sounding like a stand-in for the holistic psychologist, I love your work, it's usually a trauma response to something. So while we can bring empathy to the discussion— it's important that the empathy doesn't transmute into outright acceptance or justification of the behavior. You can accept and love someone without condoning destructive habits. And that goes for you, too. I would argue that truly loving someone, including yourself, means wanting what is best for them, even if they're upset with you for encouraging or suggesting it. The messy thing about being a human being is that it's usually, though, not a perfect dichotomy of the responsible one and the irresponsible one. One rich girl told me about how she and her husband sometimes can't agree on where they need to cut back or how because the categories of things that they value are different. Last night, he canceled our cleaning service. And I was very unhappy about this, as you can imagine. And he said, Heather, it's $150 a week. We're supposed to be saving money. And I'm like, $150 is nothing like for cleaning and it will keep me sane. But I will say two months ago, he spent $6,000 on a suspension for one of his cars. And <laughs> I told him, 
listen, that was a little unnecessary. Like you didn't need to spend that much. So we kind of shift back and forth almost all the time. And usually it's in categories of spending. So let's talk about why money in a relationship matters. You know how all the relationship experts talk about how there are certain currencies in love? The whole love language thing is predicated on it. My preferred affection currency is words of affirmation, while my husband would rather be paid in acts of service. Well, money is the literal currency in the relationship. It is a test of trust. It can either be a source of empowerment and respect or it can be a point of serious contention. And usually when it's the latter, it's the result of two people not seeing eye to eye on their priorities and values. When your husband buys a new car without telling you, he's saying, I value this car more than I value the potential energy that that money could have turned into. If you're thrilled about the decision, you agree with his prioritization of the value of that new car. You're both excited? Great, no problem. But if you're pissed off and you think that he's being extremely irresponsible, you disagree with his prioritization. You valued the potential energy of that money more than his new BMW X5. Money is just the energy with which we convey our values to one another. And when you're in an intimate relationship with another person, we tend to take those values personally because oftentimes the money that's being used to express our beliefs came from both of us and our hard-earned work. If I exchange 40 hours of my life for $3,000 and my partner blows three grand at a casino without telling me, the implicit message he just sent me is, I don't value your time or effort. That probably wasn't his intention, but Our spending and saving behaviors are just an expression of our value systems. And if our values are hella out of whack, it's going to cause friction. My fiance and I grew up in families with very different money mindsets. So my parents are pretty high earners and they are definitely more of the keeping up with the Joneses type. Whereas my fiance's parents are moderate earners and they have invested a ton of money, lived a pretty frugal lifestyle and have accumulated so much wealth, but you would never know it. Now, let's dive into how to get your partner on the same page about money. While I originally dunked on my husband's adorable suggestion that the answer is math, I think I actually agree. A big reason why I transitioned from being an overspender to maybe an oversaver was because I finally understood what money could turn into if I invested it instead of spending it. Time, freedom, options, flexibility, safety, and ultimately a future with a wider set of outcomes. It was more than just understanding compounding returns generally, though. The general math of exponential compounding is cool, but Before it had a practical application to my actual life, it was about as interesting to me as sophomore year geometry. Cool, I would say. You want to go to Urban Outfitters? Swing and a miss. These three things did change my perspective. The first was a slightly fear-based approach around retirement. Once I realized that retirement was not an age-based given, surprise, you don't just turn 65 and get handed a pile of money to live on forever— but instead something that I actually needed to ensure for myself, 
I felt a little more motivated to give a shit. That said, it still felt like a long way away. And that's where number two comes in. The relationship between my spending and my ability to work less. This was the key light bulb moment, and it came about a year into my working life. I realized that I didn't really have much to show for a full year of full-time work, and that made me sad. I started to realize that some of the decisions that I was making were trapping me into needing to work, and I hated that feeling. So the first time I calculated my own financial independence number, which was monthly expenses times 300, my eyes were opened. Wait a second, I thought. The way I'm spending right now requires a million dollars to sustain once I stop working? Understanding that spending more just guaranteed that I would need to work more felt like a sick capitalist trick. And last, that front-loading the effort absolutely works. Unlike a diet and exercise routine that you have to maintain for the rest of your life to reap the benefits forever, yawn, money effort is something that you can front load if you start early enough. For me, the realization that I was in the prime saving years of my life and if I went at it hard enough, I could stop saving aggressively in my early 30s motivated me a lot. It's what helped me flip the switch from, eh, I'm too young to worry about this, I'll figure it out later, to, oh, I'm the perfect age to care about this because I can just hurry up and get it over with and then never worry about it again. Of course, understanding how money compounds is the math component that makes those three realizations powerful. They are nothing without the effects of exponential returns, but simply understanding how money compounds in and of itself is not necessarily enough. So, okay, you've got a slight game plan. Now, how do you talk to your partner about money and financial independence? That sentence felt like it had the same energy as how to talk to your kids about sex, and I, I cringed a little, but here we go. The first conversation is going to be about planting the seed. The truth is, you don't need to overcomplicate it at this point. In fact, taking your partner on an expensive date just to have this conversation might actually make them feel blindsided. You sit down, you start digging into the appetizers, and then you spring it on them. Okay, so I want to talk about money. Wait, what? I thought we were here for bottomless breadsticks. Instead, I would try the simple approach that's dripping in integrity and makes it hard for them to turn you down. You can say something like this. Hey, spouse, partner, incredibly lifelike blow-up doll, I would like to talk about money with you soon. I care about it a lot, and there are some things that I've been working on that I want to show you. If they care about you a lot, they should hopefully accept this request. If your partner responds to that and says, no, I'm not interested in this incredibly important topic that affects our futures that you clearly care about a lot, buzz off and let me watch football in peace, I would suggest considering finding a new partner or maybe a couples therapist if you are legally bound together. Once your partner has agreed on a neutral time to discuss it, a time when you're both relaxed and they're not bogged down with work or other responsibilities, like, you know, don't interrupt them at 2 p.m. on a busy Wednesday and demand that they have the conversation right then and there. It's probably not going to go well. You pick the time and you stick to it. Maybe you bring it up on a Thursday night after dinner and then you decide to talk about it on a Sunday afternoon. That way they know it's coming and they don't feel like you sprung it on them. We started dating like the last half of that year. And so money was like a topic because I was just spending it. Like my strategy was spend it and worry about it later because I was like, 
I was living it up. My best friend worked for Disney, so I was driving to Orlando to like do that all the time, The be- like driving all the way to the beach. And so it had been a topic of like, okay, when you move at least, like that's the clean slate. Like we have to figure this out, especially if this is going to be a long-term thing. Even opening up my credit card statement to look at the line items and start classifying like what I was spending, it just was so overwhelming to figure out how do I put a number to this and how do I stick to it? I mean, especially just in that one evening of like everything coming to a front and then my 401k, I just wasn't contributing the maximum and it wasn't something I had stressed about. And I remember him being like, that's stupid. Like you're literally just not making good decisions. After all, this can be a pretty emotional experience for someone. Next comes creating a financial vision and importantly, not starting a fight. When it's time to talk, you approach it with something like this, and you come with these materials prepped. You say, okay, so I've been looking at our finances and doing a lot of reading about financial freedom, and it looks like we spend about $5,000 per month, which translates to about $60,000 per year. Since our income is $70,000 per year after taxes, that allows us to save about mm, like $10,000 annually. When we invest that money, check this out. See, this is where you whip out your sexy compound interest chart. We're on track to become millionaires in 28 years. At this point, you wait for their response and you judge the level of excitement. If they're like, so what, you asshole, you just forge ahead. You say, so, I thought that was pretty cool, but then I got to thinking, like, what if we trimmed just like $200 a month? You know, just ate out a little bit less, or maybe we pull back on Amazon. And hey, in case it's not obvious, Resist the urge to only name things that they spend money on. The ideal would be to name either things that you both buy together or one category each. You know, hey, we would become millionaires in only 24 years if we cut back. That's a whole four years faster. Isn't that crazy? And then you pull up the compound interest chart again and you wave it around, right? The idea is that you're approaching it with curiosity and excitement. You want them to feel your excitement and hope that they experience it too. It's wild how much it can positively impact someone who feels hopeless about their finances to know that you are excited and optimistic and you have a plan. Consider this. My husband came into our marriage with over $100,000 in student loan debt, no savings, and a car loan. So his perspective early on in our marriage was one that was just buried in debt. He was burdened by debt. He continually said, we will be paying these loans off forever, so we might as well enjoy life along the way since it's inevitable that we're going to keep paying for this and be stuck. To him, he just didn't see a way out. So it seemed futile to try to budget or slim down our spending since we would be stuck forever. So it took me laying out a three-year plan of debt payoffs and changing our spending patterns to shift us from drowning in debt to really setting us up for a solid financial future. So for us, it wasn't about going down, you know, to eating ramen or selling one of our cars or the cash envelope system that's weirdly popular. For us, it was just about making a plan. I had spreadsheets. I'm an analyst, so loving the spreadsheets. But we lowered our variable expenses. We planned every penny to have a specific purpose. 
and used our raises towards debt and not lifestyle creep. So my side of making that plan was kind of intense, you know, spreadsheets and calendars and bank account routing, all of that. But the version I shared with my husband was very simple. Um, He didn't need all the details. That would just be overwhelming to him. He needed me to say, we can do this. I have a plan. It will take three years. Trust me. And once I showed him the plan with, you know, the calendar showing when we would pay off each amount of debt and how we would change our financial future, that's when he did start to trust me and said, okay, you know, you take over finances, let's do this. So three years later, we're on the other side. Um, Debt is paid off. We have a new house, stable financial future. So trust was the key for us. All right. So to recap, the general pattern is based on our habits right now, this is the financial path we are on. Based on this, insert small change here, our path could look this way. Then, and here's the kicker, you want to make it real. You say something like, hey, think about it. If we're millionaires in X years, that means you can stop working when you're 47. Or if we're millionaires in X years, you can finally open that bakery you've always dreamed of. Or if we have this much money in X years, our investments will produce enough dividend income every month to make the payments on that Tesla Model S you want something that you don't have to work extra for. You get the gist? You're using the classic sales technique, what's in it for them? Because remember, money is just an expression of values. This conversation is about having a judgment-free discussion about what you both value and getting your partner talking about what they'd really like their life to look like can be a powerful motivator for change. Nobody changes their behavior unless they feel incentivized to do so. You want to paint the picture of a better life and help them feel what that would be like. It is a hell of a lot more compelling than you are spending too much money at Crate and Barrel and if you don't stop buying ceramic cookware, I'm going to cut you off. It's important to establish a positive first interaction so that the next time you try to approach the topic, it doesn't feel like a landmine. So let's discuss a few do's and don'ts for the first few conversations where you're building financial intimacy. The first don't is don't bite off more than you can chew. If you have never had a conversation about money before or, you know, you've never had one that went well, quit while you're still ahead. You don't need to solve all of your financial problems in one conversation. Keep it light, exciting, fun. Make it all about how excited you are about what you've learned and about how small changes can impact your future. Show them what's in it for them and paint the picture of a better life. Just focus on the positives because you're just planting a seed, remember? Unless they are super into it and they want to learn more and they seem like they really want to keep going, cut it off after like 15 or 20 minutes and say, anyway, thought that was pretty cool. We can talk about it again in a few days. Do encourage responses from your partner and let them talk, but don't get discouraged if the first time doesn't get them amped up. Some people need time to process things before they can get on board or get excited. So give the other person space to react and respond to what you're saying. Like, hey, what do you think you'd want to do if you could retire at 47? But don't get discouraged or mean if they seem initially disinterested or don't really have much to add. You want to give them the space to contribute, but don't force it. You also don't want to go on the attack. If your partner has a financial habit that's dragging y'all down collectively, the first conversation about financial independence is not the time to start throwing daggers at bad habits. 
In fact, you probably don't want to get specific just yet. You are merely trying to get them on board with the vision. And it's very important that the other person doesn't feel like you're casting blame on them. And if they already feel consciously or subconsciously guilty about their financial habits, they may even project that onto you. Even if you don't say anything that suggests blame, you want to tread lightly at first, and if they get upset, don't get defensive. The last is to do remind your partner that you love them. Aw, isn't that sweet? It sounds stupid, but the phrase can be a powerful diffuser of tension. So, In the instance that they get defensive or they feel like you're blaming them or for some reason really overreact, you say, hey, I'm I'm sorry that I made you feel that way when I said that. that. That wasn't my intention and I love you. I'm just excited about our future. A little bit of affection and reassurance goes a really long way, especially in these emotionally fraught conversations about something as important as money. But hopefully the first conversation will just be light and fun. So, how do you get your partner on board with your financially independent goals? That first conversation is key because it sets the tone. It's going to get them bought into the concept. That way, the next time you come back and you're suggesting, hey, let's budget, let's make a plan, they're going to be more receptive to it. You don't want to worry about making the budget or creating the plan up front. You just want to get them on board. And it might take a few attempts, so don't be afraid to iterate. If the first time doesn't go well, wait a few days, try again. But there is hope. We moved in together last January. It just logistically made more sense. We got married in April. So from January to April, that was like our trial period is what we called it of like finances were still separate, but we put everything on a joint budget and started just looking at what we were spending and figuring out like how that approach is going to work. I mean, you can like talk about it all day, but until you're getting married and like it just becomes a lot more real it's a learning process. Like every day is you don't realize what's going to trigger you or like bother you (laughs) until you're talking about it. So we've gone through like all the ranges of it. First, it was like getting me to a good place. I like owed my mom some money. So we had to get together to figure out how I was going to pay her back and be done with that debt. Then it became like, let's figure out how to pay off my car and just start prioritizing what our goals were together. And I am really lucky in that I have a partner that balances me out and is very like intelligent and smart and that stuff really fills up his cup. So it's a priority to him. And so I make it a priority and now it's become more important to me. Our approaches are just different. I definitely lean towards the like YOLO, like just spend the money. It's going to be worth it where he like really thinks about it, analyzes it. And so we just have to come to a good agreement. And we were talking about it too, like, It's not like we're always fighting each other on it. We just know that our natural tendencies are very different. And so we just like respect that, acknowledge that, and then it's a part of whatever conversation we're having. Just don't start with the budget. Nothing sounds less fun to someone who hates restrictions than, hey, honey, let's sit down and create some restrictions. You want to agree on the destination before you start building the roadmap of how to get there. And once you agree on the destination, building a map together will be a hell of a lot easier. All right, that's all for today, Rich Girls. I will see you next Wednesday, same time, same place on the Money with Katie podcast.